Chapter 14 of The Conquest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. The Conquest by Oscar Michaud. Chapter 14 The Surveyors. The entire Little Crow Reservation consisted of about two million acres of land, four-fifths of which was unopened and lay west of Megory County. Of the two million acres, perhaps one million five hundred thousand ranged from fair to the richest of loam soil, underlaid with clay. The climatic condition is such that all kinds of crops grown in the central west can be grown here. Two hundred miles north, corn will not mature. Two hundred miles south, spring wheat is not grown. Two hundred west, the altitude is too high to ensure sufficient rainfall to produce a crop but the reservation lands are in such a position that winter wheat spring wheat oats rye corn flax and barley do well ever since the drought of ninety four all crops had thrived the rainfall being abundant and continuing so during the first year of settlement. Orristown and other towns on the route of the railroad had waited twenty years for the extension, and now the citizens of Orristown estimated it would be at least ten years before it extended its line through the reservation, while the settlers, to the number of some eight thousand, hoped they would get the road in five years. However, no sleep was lost in anticipation. The nearest the reservation came to getting a railroad that summer was by the way of a newspaper in Megory, whose editor spent most of his time building roads into Megory from the north, south, and the east. In reality, the CNRW was the only road likely to run the reservation, and all the towns depended on its extension to overcome the long, burdensome freighting with teams. With all the country's local advantages, its geographical location was such as to exclude roads from all directions except the one taken by the CNRW. To the south lay nine million acres of worthless sand hills, through which it would require an enormous sum of money to build a road. Even then there would be miles of track which would practically pay no interest on the investment. At that time there was no railroad extending the full length of the state from east to west, most lines stopping at or near the Missouri River. Since then, two or three lines have been built into the western part of the state, but they experienced much difficulty in crossing the river, owing to the soft bottom which in many places would not support a modern steel bridge. For from one to two months in the spring, floating ice gives a great deal of trouble and wreaks disaster to the pontoon. A bird's-eye view of the little crow show it to look something like a bottle. 
the neck being the Missouri River, with the CNRW tracks creeping along its west bank. This is the only feasible route to the reservation, and the directors of this road were fully aware of their advantageous position. The freight rates from Omaha to Oristown, a distance of 250 miles, being as high as from Omaha to Chicago, a distance of 500 miles. But getting back to the settlers around and in the little towns on the Little Crow, the first thing to be considered in the extension was that the route it took would naturally determine the future of the towns. Hedrick, Kirk, and Megory were government town sites, strung in a northwesterly direction across the country, ranging from 8 to 15 miles apart, the last being about five miles and a half east of the west line of the county. Now the county on the west was expected to be thrown open to settlement soon, would likely be opened under the lottery system, as was Megory County. After matters had settled, this began to be discussed, particularly by the citizens of Megory, five and one-half miles from the Tip County line. This placed Megory in the same position to handle the crowds coming into the next county, as Oristown had for Megory County, excepting Megory would have an advantage, for Tip County was twice as large as Megory. When this was all considered, the people of Megory began to boost the town on the prospects of a future boom. The only uncertain feature of the matter then to be considered was which way the road would extend. That was where the rub came in. Which way would the road go? This became a source of continual worry and speculation on the part of the towns, and the men who felt inclined to put money into the towns in the way of larger, better, and more commodious buildings. But when they were encouraged to do so, there was always the bogey if. If the railroad should miss us, well, the man owning the big buildings was stung, that was all, while the man with the shack could load it on two or four wagons and, with a few good horses, land his building in the town the railroad struck or started. This was, and is yet, one of the big reasons shacks are so numerous in a town in a new country, which expects a road but knows not which way it will come. And the officials of the CNRW were no different from the directors of any other road. They were mum as dummies. They wouldn't tell whether the road would ever extend or not. The Orristown citizens claimed it was at one time in the same uncertainty as the towns to the west, and for some fifteen or twenty years it had waited for the road. With the road stopping at Orristown, they argued, it would be fully ten years before it left, and during this time it could be seen, Orristown would grow into an important prairie city, as it should. Everything must be hauled into Oristown as well as out, so it can be seen that Oristown would naturally boom. While nothing had been raised to the west to ship out as yet, still there was a growing population on the reservation, and thousands of carloads of freight and express were being hauled into and from Oristown monthly, 
for the settlers on the reservation, which filled the town with railroad men and freighters. Crops had been good, and everything was going along smoothly for the citizens and property owners of Orristown. Not a cloud on her sky of prosperity, and as the trite saying goes, everything was lovely and the goose hung high during the first year of settlement on the Little Crow. And now, lest we forget, Callis. Callis was located one and one-half miles east and three miles south of Megory, and five miles straight west of Kirk. If the CNRW extending its line west should strike all the government town sites, as was claimed by people in these towns who knew nothing about it, and Callis, it would have run from Kirk to Megory in a very unusual direction. Indeed, it would have been following the section lines, and it is common knowledge, even to the most ignorant, that railroads do not follow section lines unless the section lines are directly in its path. If the railroad struck Kirk and Megory, it was a cinch it would miss Callis. If it struck Callis, perched on the banks of the Monka Creek, the route the Nicholsons, as promoters of the town, claimed it would take, the road would miss all the towns but Callis. This would have meant glory and a fortune for the promoters and lot holders of the town. It would also have meant that my farm, or at least part of it, would in time be sold for town lots. After I got so badly overreached in dealing with horses, for a time the opinion was general that the solitary negro from the plush cushions of a pea would soon see that growing up with a new country was not to his liking, and would be glad to sell at any old figure and beat it back to more ease and comfort. This is largely the opinion of most of the white people regarding the negro, and they are not entirely wrong in their opinion. I was quite well aware that such an opinion existed, but contrary to expectations, I rather appreciated it. When I broke out 120 acres with such an outfit as I had, as against many other real farmers who had not broken over 40 acres, with good horses and their knowledge of breaking prairie acquired in states they had come from, I began to be regarded in a different light. At first I was regarded as an object of curiosity, which changed to appreciation, and later admiration. I was not called a free-go-easy coon, but a genuine booster for Callis and the Little Crow. I never spent a lonesome day after that. The Nicholson brothers, however, gave the settlers no rest, and created another sensation of railroad building by their new contention that the railroad would not be extended from Orristown, but that it would be built from a place on the Monka Bottom two stations below Orristown, where the track climbed a 4% grade to Fairview, then on to Orristown. They offered as proof of their contention that the CNRW maintained considerable yardage there, and it does yet. Why it did, people did not know, and this kept everybody guessing. Some claimed it would go up the Monka Valley, as Nicholson claimed. This much can be said in favor of the Nicholsons, 
They were good boosters, or big liars as their rivals called them, and if one listened long and diligently enough, they would have him imagine he could hear the exhaust of a big locomotive coming up the Monka Valley. While the people in the government town sites persisted loudly that the CNRW had contracted with the government before the towns were located to strike these three towns, and that the government had helped to locate them, that furthermore the railroad would never have left the Monka Valley, which had followed for some twenty miles after leaving the banks of the Missouri all of which sounded reasonable enough, but the government and the railroad had entered into no agreement whatever, and the people in the government towns knew it and were uneasy. I had been on my claim just about a year, when one day Rattlesnake Jack's father came from his home on the Jim River and sold me her homestead for $3,000. My dreams were at last realized, and I had become the owner of 320 acres of land. But my money was now gone when I paid the $1,500 down on the Rattlesnake Jack Place, giving her back a mortgage for the remaining 1500 at 7% interest. And it was a good thing I did, too. I bought the place early in April and in June the Interior Department rejected the proof she had offered the November before on account of lack of sufficient residence and cultivation. The proof had been accepted by the local land office, and a final receipt for the remaining installments of the purchase price, amounting to $480, was issued. A final receipt is considered to be equivalent to a patent or deed but when Rattlesnake Jack's proof of residence got to the general land office in Washington in quest of a patent, the commissioner looked it over, figured up the time she actually put in on the place, and rejected the proof, with the statement that it only showed about six months' actual residence. At that time, eight months' residence was required, with six months within which to establish residence but no proof could be accepted until after the claimant had shown eight months' actual and continuous residence. From the time the settlers began to commute or prove up on the Little Crow, all proofs which did not show fully eight months' residence were rejected. This was done mostly by the register and receiver of the local land office, and many were sent back on their claims to stay longer. Many proofs were also taken by local U.S. commissioners, county judges, and clerks of courts, but these officers rarely rejected them, for by so doing they also rejected a $4.25 fee. About one-third of the persons who offered proof at that time had them turned down at the local land office. This gave the local commissioners, county judges, and clerks of courts, a chance to collect twice for the same work. It may be interesting to know that a greater percentage of proofs rejected were those offered by women. This was perhaps not due to the fact that the ladies did not stay on their claims so much as it was conscientiousness. They could not make a forcible showing by saying they had been there every night 
like the men would claim, but would say instead that they had stayed all night with Miss So-and-so this time, and with another that time, and by including a few weeks' visit at home or somewhere else, they would bungle their proofs, so they were compelled to try again. A short time after this, and evidently because so many proofs had been sent back, the Interior Department made it compulsory for the claimant to put in 14 months' actual residence on the claim before he could offer proof. With 14 months, they were sure to stay a full eight months at least. This system has been very successful. When Rattlesnake Jack was ordered back, after selling me the place, she wanted me to sign a quit-claim deed to her and accept notes for the money I had paid, which might have been satisfactory had it not been that she thought I had stopped to look back and failed to see the rush of progress the little crow was making, that the long-anticipated news had been spread and was now raging like a veritable prairie fire, and stirred the people of the little crow as much as an active stock market stirs the bulls on the stock exchange. The report spread and stirred the everyday routine of the settlers, and the finality of humdrum and inactivity was abrupt. It came one day in early April. The rain had kept the farmers from the fields a week. It had been raining for nearly a month, and we only got a clear day once in a while. This day it was sloppy without, and many farmers were in from the country. We were all listening to a funny story Ernest Nicholson was telling, and good fellows were listening attentively. Dr. Salter, a physician, had just been laid on a couch in the back room of the saloon, soused to the gills, when in the door John M. Keeley, a sort of near-to-well popular drummer, whose proof had been rejected some time before, and who had come back to stay a while longer, stumbled into the door of the local groggery. He was greeted with sallies and calls of welcome, and like many of the others, he was feeling good. He sort of leaned over and hiccuping during the intervals started, I've, the words were spoken chokingly, got news for you. He had by now got inside and was hanging and swinging at the same time to the bar. Then, before finishing what he started, called Tom to the bartender, Give me a whiskey before I... And here he leaned over and sang the words, Tell the boys the news. For the love of Jesus Keel, exclaimed the crowd in chorus, Tell us what you know. He drained the glass at a gulp and finally spit it out. Their surveyors are in Orristown. End of chapter 14